0: Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone excited about the last day of frost, which will hopefully come, and uh, finally getting myself into the garden again after a long, long longish or long winter. Um, And I'm very pleased to have Dusty Hines in studio with me. Um, And Dusty is the co-owner of Agrarian Seed and Garden. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Laura.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. So tell us a little bit about your background and...
1: Uh, Well, I grew up in Richfield, Minnesota, and um, I went to Augsburg College, uh, where I studied political science with a minor in Spanish, and I studied abroad in Venezuela a couple of times, which was uh, a wonderful experience. Um, And it was throughout college um, that I started learning more about the world and reading more books, and I started watching Democracy Now!, and um, um, basically kind of developed a a philosophy that uh, told me that our way of life is unsustainable, and it was and and uh, we're basically committing eco with our way of life, and um, and it seemed like uh, gar- organic farming and gardening uh, seemed like a practical kind of uh, direct action, small scale response to these um, to this larger. Uh, behemoth system that we're facing. And so I got into urban farming first in Minneapolis for one year in 2011. Then I moved to uh, – Philadelphia. That was
0: growing lots, right?
1: Uh, no, 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 no. no. Uh, this, was, uh, this was actually our first – that first year we were concrete the concrete beat uh, urban farmers. And that actually ch- eventually changed to Stone's Throw uh, Urban Farm. But I was yeah. gone after that. Then I moved to Philadelphia um, where I got involved with the uh, – well, this was in the fall of 2011 – it's Occupy Wall Street, and there was a subsection of Occupy Wall Street called Occup- in Occupy uh, Philadelphia. And um, there was also a subgroup of Occupy Philly called Occupy Vacant Lots, and this is where a bunch of kind of gardener folks got together. And um, this is where I met Nate Kleinman. We end up doing some urban farming in Philly for a while, but then we branched out to South Jersey, about 40 minutes south of Philadelphia, Um, in a town called Elmer, New Jersey, and I farmed there with Nate for four years, and we co-founded the Experimental Farm Network, um, which has now uh, really grown into a thriving uh, organic seed company that features many different growers from across the country doing really important uh, seed-saving work and uh, plant-breeding work. Uh, adapting plants to their bioregion. region. Uh, we've got many people focused on perennial edible plants. This whole idea of like sequestering carbon while we also are, um, part- you know, doing agriculture at the uh, doing these things at the same time, and um, and so that's the precursor to um, me eventually coming back to Minnesota. Um, I, I I run a uh, I run the seed company part of, of our of our whole setup with my brother and his wife um, out of Richfield. But then me and my brother, uh, Colty, and his wife, Kiera, um, we also ended up buying this garden center in Minneapolis. And so we're also running this garden center now. And we just opened uh, last week um, on Tuesday, April 18th for the season. And that's kind of... the. That's kind of you know we I should say this, I also have a farm in southeastern Minnesota, and I'm really into agroforestry stuff like growing hazelnuts and chestnuts, but basically, the synopsis is seed company, garden center in Minneapolis, and a farm uh
0: and it's all grounded on maybe ecocide doesn't isn't the most wonderful way to live in this world, maybe we can do something better than having an ecosidic type of um systems. E-
1: yeah, absolutely. And um and you know what the reality is though is that's going to take hard work and sacrifice. And um there's no um techno futurist solutions like w- uh, solar panels, wind turbines. I'm sorry folks, but if we don't get down to the brass tacks of like kind of like really getting down to the crux of like our the way our whole way of life is constructed and designed and um then we're we're really up a crick here. So um I'm I'm big on this idea that like it's going to take hard work and sacrifice and it's kind of like flipping this whole way of life kind of on its head. Basically, is what kind of needs to happen.
0: And when you were talking about that occupy, I remember um last time when you on my show about this time last year, we talked about David Graeber's work and I still I have my I have my name on the the waiting list at the library to read his most recent book cuz I haven't. But I did read his book Debt: The 5000-Year History. And um, you want to talk a little bit about um whatever I'm going to say, the whatever his work and what it reveals about how our systems are sort of operated out of a um, suicide or an ecocide um, perspective. Oh, that might be too big. Yeah, well, but. The, no,
1: the book uh, Debt was such an eye-opening book and it kind of gives you some of the origins of, um, of social constructs of debt in different cultures um, around the world and – Really, it's also associated with, like, the origins of civilization itself. Um, In fact, some of the original um, printing of coins, uh, like, or making of coins, like, many, many thousands of years ago was paid, uh, what was used to pay, like, mercenary, like, standing armies and stuff. And it was the way of kind of, like, generating an economy uh, to get, like, the um, local producers to produce goods, like, basically for, like, these standing armies. Anyways, um... No, that's a fascinating book and it would be a lot to delve into. But it's, suffice it to say is it's um, eye-opening about – yeah, there's kind of like the origins of debt and
0: uh, – Well, yeah. I guess – I mean I know. I'm, but one thing I love about your work is that we need – you are a living example of finding um, a capitalistic solution to capitalistic problems. Yeah,
1: and, and I think that's kind of just what um, – that's kind of, we we live in this system, and and we all basically make compromises um, in in this system in which we live. And and absolutely, I mean, I I think in this in this particular system that we live in, um, producing seeds, producing plants, all of this you know takes money. And so I, I am in the business of 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 producing things and selling things, and and. Um, I also – I don't get too hung up on issues of, I don't know, like personal purity sometimes it's called or stuff like this. Like the reality is this is important work that needs to be like happening and money just happens to be like a medium that basically most of us kind of need to operate with right now because that's what is dictated to us. Um, and it's kind of how our society functions right now.
0: <laughs> right now, exactly. So, um, so but the gardening shop is at fifty one, fifty two Hiawatha Avenue, and um, I remember last time we talked the uh, that that was a long time gardening shop, and the owner really wanted it to stay a local gardening store.
1: Yes. Um. So, in the thirties, forties, and fifties, this building, uh, our garden center is at fifty second and Hiawatha in South Minneapolis, just a, a couple blocks south of Minnehaha Falls, but on the west side of Hiawatha, right next to the light rail. And in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, this building was a gas station. It eventually became a market. And around the year 2000, um, Bruce, the former owner uh, of the garden center, he he's the one who who uh, originally made it a garden center. And this was kind of like his baby. It was like his, like the coolest, you know, funnest thing that he did in his life. And he put it on the market and he did end up getting some higher offers from some developers, but he actually took less money to sell it to us because we were the only people that wanted to keep it as a garden center. And uh, it was one of kind of one of those cool moments where like you're like, oh, like maybe the universe is not so awful and terrible. <laughs> and he um, has been very supportive of us the very first year. He sat down with us and we went through all these different plant catalogs and he told us the things uh, that we should be you know uh, buying to have in the store. And um, – Yes, so we have kept it as a garden center we're entering into our third year now we have a huge selection of native perennial plants and herbs and I curate the vegetable collection we've got annual flowers we've got a big berries selection and we've got tools and so there's it's a really practical garden center um, and the support of the local uh, East Nokomis neighborhood has been has been tremendous there's a lot of like diehard local customers that really support us and um, so it's going well over there.
0: Okay. And so how are you different than maybe the other um big box stores? What, what how is it different?
1: Yeah, uh well a couple things. Well, the, for the, for with the uh with the vegetables that we sell in the store and uh, a a good amount of the herbs as well, I source those from two of my uh organic farmer friends. And and I supply some of the seeds to these growers and so there's kind of a A uniquely curated um, vegetable plant selection um, that is grown by organic local organic farmers uh, who are also I feel great like supporting them as well. Um, Another example is I I was just on this. Road trip, and I stopped um, in Wisconsin where there 's this experimental fruit grower guy named Mikel and he is also like a little mini nursery uh, nursery guy who grows a a bunch of oh, all kinds of different plants, some edible, some um, just like native shrubs and trees and all kinds of stuff oaks and willows and all kinds of stuff. but um I stopped in there and um, bought about five hundred dollars worth of plants off of him. And just little smatterings of things. Like I bought a a cherry plum and some oak trees and um, comfrey plants and a handful of other things that we didn't have in the store. And so it's one of these things that I'm sourcing things from some, you know, little guy who's off in the Driftless in uh, southwestern Wisconsin. So really we try to curate like a wide selection of lots of different plants. Um, And I try to – and my goal really with the Garden Center is to try to source as many of these things from small scale uh, growers that I know myself. Um, and so moving in the long run, like I would love for every plant in the store to be grown by like a, a small scale person rather than maybe like a, a, um, like a bigger wholesale supplier. And, and we do use wholesale suppliers and those are also technically, and they're not even that big of businesses either. But um, so yeah, that's a little bit about um, some of our, what sets us apart.
0: So uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit more about the Experimental Farm Network and we're also going to talk about your visit last week with uh, Jim Embry. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and in studio is Dusty Hines with um, Agrarian Seed and Garden uh, on uh, 52nd in Hiawatha in Minneapolis. You're hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Take a sad song and make it better. Yeah, we can we can take all of our sad songs and 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 make them better. And uh, in studio with me right now is someone that's been working on making it better, uh, Dusty Hines with Agrarian Seed and Garden. And that story again is at 52nd and Hiawatha in Minneapolis. So, Dusty, tell us a little bit about what you were doing last week. Well,
1: just over the weekend, uh, uh, I went on a road trip uh, down to Kentucky, and um, there is a, 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 a pretty new, uh, just in the last couple of years, the uh, last three, four years, this whole concept has been developed, uh, but there's a, there's a new black-owned uh, seed company called Ujamaa, and um, this is basically uh, a big part of this, the impetus for starting this is, is this uh, woman, uh, Benita um who Benita Adib uh who lives in Maryland and um the idea is you know many of the in, in the organic seed world um there's no shortage of uh white people around and you know that is what it is but I think it's a great goal to have more diversity um in many things in our society in all things in our society and in the seed world as well and so there's this great new seed company that started, and my other co-founder of the seed company, uh, of our seed company, the Experimental Farm Network, Nate Kleinman, has been a consultant, and he's been helping um, with some of his experience and knowledge to help this seed company get going. And in Kentucky this past weekend, the uh, Ujamaa uh, Seeds had their annual uh, convening, and um, me and Nate were asked to uh, speak um, to the group about some of our in-house seed operations and logistics, and then you know we were also there just building relationships and kind of building solidarity, and um, as well as you know some of these growers who grow for Ujama, they also might you know sell some seeds through the experimental farm ne- network as well. So um, I think one thing about this past weekend is there's this feeling that we're all in this together, and um, also. This past weekend, I was able to meet Jim Embry for the first time. This is this uh, guy who just won this James Beard Award for Leadership. He's based out of Kentucky, and part of the reason for having uh, this whole uh, convening there was that this past weekend was Jim's birthday. And um, Jim is a big activist and organic farmer, and it was really uh, cool to meet him for the first time. And... Yeah, it was beautiful in Kentucky. Uh, this was in Berea, Kentucky, where there's this college, and uh, we were able to do some hiking up this, like, it's kind of in the rolling, like, hills uh, part of Kentucky, like, not not really technically, like, you know, it's uh, to the east, it's more mountainous or whatever, but, um, so that's where I just came from this weekend. It was a fun road trip to get down there and um, get connected with people, and, Yeah,
0: Yeah. So, uh, And Jim's going to be in the Twin Cities in in June, and uh, um, we'll have more details on that. I know he's going to be on Food Freedom Radio um, the first weekend, or the second weekend in June, he's scheduled. And he was on July 22nd, uh, July 2nd of last year we had him on, and he was doing this joy and justice tour. And I love this idea of moving towards joy and justice, but to do it joyfully. And was that kind of living in that group? Was it just – did the – I don't want to say how are the vibes, but that's a word that's coming to mind. <laughs> yes, the
1: vibes were very – It actually, you know, I have my moments of – like anyone else does about this world that we live in and there's a lot going on out there. But uh, really this past weekend was kind of one of those weekends that rejuvenates you and um, you see everyone else's passion and determination to um, fight for what's right and – um, just all the energy that they're putting into starting this, uh, this seed company is a really a beautiful thing. And, uh, Jim Embry is certainly one of those people that like rubs off on you, uh, with, uh, he's, he's, um, he's funny. He's very direct and, uh, he, um, yeah, he's even a bit intense, but, uh, I really appreciated it. Um, and he has a lot of wisdom. To bestow on, on, on all of us.
0: And I was really happy that he got the James Beard Leadership Award this year in 2023. So I'm going to, and of course he's been active, he founded Sustainable Communities Network, he's been uh, long active in uh, the Slow Food Network. But I'm going to read um, a sentence from the James Beard Leadership Award. Because stolen land from indigenous people and stolen labor of African people to do agriculture and food work is the foundational contradiction of injustice in our nation. This award bestowed by the James Beard Foundation is a recognition and a reaffirmation that resolving this contradiction of injustice deeply embedded in food and agriculture is also the fulcrum point for much needed transformation of our society. Well said. I know, and coming from James Beard, it carries a little bit of, you know, weight. Mm-hmm. But um, the so and and but but the one one thing I wish was included in this statement, and I think, it, is that also it's our reciprocity with the natural world. Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. Um, I don't really have anything else to add to it. I think it's a great quote. I do. Yeah, and I do too.
0: And that's why I mean, and I and I, I do think that the the natural world, even though I mean, you're right, we're all feeling so much weight, especially given the fact that we're experiencing a sixth mass extinction on the planet right now. We have the bumblebees, we have the birds, we know what's happening with our oceans, all these stories about nitrates in the water, um, um, and trying to do our best to move and 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 that. Um, And that joy can be the lubricant to get us to move.
1: Yeah, we need joy. We need joy. We're not going to do anything, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves. Um, Yeah. So we got to keep grinding away because, you know, why not? I actually – I've actually been saying – I'm going to expose myself here. Since high school, I've been randomly saying like we exist and I like to really think about – I've just randomly said, like, we exist, and um, sometimes, you know, I like to just ponder our whole existence, and, um, and there can be something that's dark about that, but um, you can't stay there forever, and, um, and we do need to uh, strive ahead.
0: Strive ahead, and in and and and, and then doing that in a way that's um, that that actually um, mimics um, the joyful, which I think I think that's the natural intelligence of the world. I really do, and I know that can seem kind of like a crazy thought, but I take my dog to the dog park almost every day, and these dogs are just happy with each other, and so do the other life forms. I'm like the bees. I mean, and I know there's all that dark stuff, and but I actually think trying to um, trying to do this now now and so one of the one of the ways to have reciprocity with reality in the real world is to garden and finding our way of gardening and planning
1: well, I, mean, I think a connection with nature is uh, h- huge for all of us um, and really i mean i think when we talk about all this you know all this sustainability stuff and all this um, mm-hmm. All these, like you know, we, we talk a lot about these bigger social systems and this whole thing, but really, I mean, I think um, the way forward for humanity really has to include kind of this like ecological embeddedness, like in your own area. Like, do you know the plants in your own area? Are there, uh, you know, preserving wild places and um, and no, yeah, and just knowing like what plants are out there uh, and being able to get away from. You know, being in a, like closed up in a box or something.
0: So we're going to take a break, and we come back. We're going to talk about what plants are out there and what plants can be out there, and what is on your 2023 perennial list, and uh, what are the uh, annuals that we can be planting this year, and how do we start planting these gardens? So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and in studio with me is um, Dusty Hines with um, Agrarian Seed Company, Agrarian.com. <laughs> Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone excited about the last frost day and finally being able to in the garden after a long winter. And uh, joining me is the owner of agrarianseed.com. Um, Agrarian Seeding Garden is on 52nd in Hiawatha in Minneapolis. Dusty Hines, welcome back to Food Freedom Radio.
1: Great to be here.
0: All right, so let's talk about some of the plants you have.
1: Yeah, well, at our garden center, I mean, I think, the best thing we really have going at our garden center is we have a huge plant selection um, that is just something that we don 't spare any expense on and we expense on and we really um, strive to have a, a great diversity of plants um, from the vegetables and the herbs and annual flowers and we 've got a big berry pl- um, uh, plant selection um, and as well as the um, native perennial uh, like prairie plants and so this is a big A big – a very large focus at our store, Um, obviously, with the intention of just restoring native habitat and um, trying to create habitat for pollinators. Um, That's absolutely critical um, with what we're facing with ecocide and insect collapse and and, – so, yeah, some of the, we have, uh, shade plants we have at the store. We have Jack in the Pulpit, Wild Ginger, among many others. We do have a total of a hundred, uh, different native plant species that we, that we have, uh, at the store. Um, we also have the coneflowers and the blazing stars, black-eyed Susan, asters, milkweeds. Um, just, yeah, a, a very large diversity and there's a whole section devoted to it. So really, um, if you're out there and you're, you know, maybe like a vegetable garden's too much work for you, or maybe that's something that you're not necessarily into. But these um, perennial prairie plants—they come back year after year. They're great for um, pollinators, and you can plant those in an area. Um, maybe prep the area first by uh, possibly tilling it or uh, yeah, breaking up the the um, grass or something. Um, you could put a little compost in, and then you could put these prairie plants down, and you could put some wood chips over it. And it's not too, you know, difficult to maintain. And um, these plants will come back year after year. And I've seen some beautiful uh, landscape projects um, that are beautiful. You're restoring native habitat. Um, you're feeding the bees. And, it, it, yeah, I would say that, the, you know, we, it, it is all this grass that we have out there is – a problem. Um, however, you know, I, uh,
0: Kentucky bluegrass is the largest evasive species in the United States. I mean, this is the, uh, <laughs> I, um, and I'm laughing just because it's it's actually frustrating that it's still so common and that people are planting and we still see so much Kentucky bluegrass and people are conditioned to believe that to be a good neighbor, I have 100% evasive Kentucky bluegrass and it's thick and rich and deep and green and yet, you know, there's, it,
1: Yes, yeah, so um, you know another thing is if, if you are a person that – if you do want to plant grass, we also have this B-lawn mix grass seed at the store that has some of the fescues. Uh, there's three fescues uh, in this grass um, – in this grass mix. And the fescue is a little bit more floppy and it tends to fall over, so you don't really need to mow it as much or if at all. Um, but it also includes some uh, pollinator uh, plants within this grass mix. And uh, there's like creeping thyme, there's self-heal, and there's white clover. And so, um, like, this is – if you want to plant grass, if you're uh, – you know, this is possibly, like, a good alternative to have some beneficial uh, pollinator plants within your uh, grass mix. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, it is nice to have a clean look. And so, um, having – I mean, having a clean look – and I I'm, I don't want to be too negative on Kentucky bluegrass, but it's just – it is an invasive, and it's not – do, what what are some of the problems? Do you see problems with a common American lawn?
1: Absolutely. It's very wasteful. Um, yeah, I'm going to spill my true colors here. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's a problem. The amount of water wasted on just watering lawns, it's like that's – it's just not a good thing for society at all. I mean the, all the fossil fuel used to like mow the grass. Um, we do need to figure out ways – um, for this society to create, like, alternatives that feel, like, culturally um, – so people don't feel like they have to be, like, the outlier on their block or something. We should try to be creating, like, new normative, like, cultural, like, um, phenomenon that, like, allow people to just, like, create – um, more of like a prairie situation and not feel like you're, you know, not keeping up with the Joneses. The other thing is that there are a few, um, there also are some native grasses. Uh, there's drop seed, uh, there's little and big blue bluestem, uh, there's various other um, native grasses as well, which are also great alternatives to possibly like the Kentucky bluegrass or whatever. So there are a lot of native plant options out there uh, for people.
0: Yeah. And uh, talk about some of the vegetables that you have.
1: Oh, well, I curate the whole vegetable collection. Um, This year we have um, about 20 tomatoes, um, just about as many peppers. Uh, We've got a handful of like three, four different kinds of kale. Um, We also have – so we do have – we we, we run the seed company. That's the Experimental Farm Network. And that is at efnseeds.com. People can, you know – buy seeds from us online and we can just ship them to you. But we also have about half of the seed catalog in the store at the garden center as well. Um, So if you're just looking for a one-stop shop and you want to come and get your plants and your seeds, um, we have a lot of seeds in the store as well. And for, um, oh, geez, for vegetables, we have uh, cabbage, we have melons, we have watermelon, we have uh, zucchini squash, other kinds of summer squash, winter squash, we have seed potatoes, um... We have edamame, uh, which is um, soybean, but it's, you know, it's bred for, you know, the pods and, and stuff like that. We have green bean transplant, peas transplants. We have a bunch of lettuce. We have spinach. We have arugula. Uh, we have a huge herb selection. And uh, we also have a good amount of pottery at the store as well as potting soil. So maybe you don't have a garden ready, like prepped in like it's actual like like in your yard or in your backyard or something. and But you could come in, you can get um, you can get some pots, you can get some potting soil, you can get these plants, and um, you can start a little mini garden in pots, which is uh, like a little mini herb garden or something like that, or just some lettuce packs that grow really easy in like a little pot or something. So there's a lot of options for people. And um, and then really um, any, okay, so possible advice if you were going to start, so pot, pot, growing in little pots is a great possibility. Um you could and When you
0: do grow in pots, you have to water more often. So
1: That's true. Uh, yep, absolutely. I at this point in my life prefer I do grow some herbs in pots, but if I'm growing a garden, I really like growing in the ground for a variety of reasons. But um but if you were going to st- you could also, you know, start a little garden in your backyard. I think the biggest thing would be y- y- try to get rid of that grass by um breaking it up with a shovel or maybe even renting a tiller or using a tiller or something like that. And then Really, my biggest piece of advice is add a bunch of compost um, and then you know maybe some like organic um, like fertilizers or something. We have some, uh, some organic fertilizers in the store as well. Um, and we have these nice Cosmo compost bags, which um, people there's kind of like a little fan club for this company. Uh, <laughs> Cosmo makes great compost. I use it in my I have used it in my garden it, and, and it grows uh, it makes vegetable plants very happy.
0: Yeah, the Cosmos does have a great – I don't know why it popped in my mind, but these jumping worms, um, they seem kind of scary. Do you know anything about those or?
1: Yeah. Eh. I I, I mean we watch for them at the store. It's something that – I mean I have a little bit of a – I have a little bit of a different perspective on invasives. It's that like – To some extent, if we are going to participate in economic globalization, and that's basically what humanity has been doing for the past 500 years, I think it's inevitable that there's going to be invasive species. So I guess as long as I'm put on the spot here, my thing is like if we really care about dealing with invasive species generally and not like just dealing with each one and like this new case by case, like, oh, it's some new emergency basis, it's like – well, maybe we should not be doing as much global uh, trade and we should really try to focus on being sustainable inside our own bioregion. That would just be what I would say about invasive plants.
0: Um, yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's fair. But, and I know, but, but, I mean, the other thing I w- I'll pop in there is because there's so many things to be afraid of. And it's almost like, and I remember I was so afraid of the Asian beetles, they're going to come and do all this. And, we fed them to the frog. It was kind of fun. Throw them in at the frog once upon a time. But um, that was supposed to be a joke. But, you know, they didn't do as much damage as I was afraid they were. I'm still really careful now. I mean, so with the, the jumping frogs, I was jumping frogs, jumping worms, because um, yeah, I want to be more careful sharing plants with each other. And I understand they can— Really cause a lot of soil damage, and people are really dealing with heartaches there. But it's I guess not good. It's not good now. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say is, uh, like, I really like to do the box gardens just because it's it's easier to get the nice clean soil in there, and and it's it's just easier to kind of keep that. I have other areas that are I almost doing more nature led, but in um, a box garden, um, do you, have, do you have any tips on how to do a box garden, or do you like that? Um.
1: I think they're a great easy way, um, easy entry point, point. Um, and we do have these uh, these little ready-to-go raised bed boxes at the garden center that are actually pretty affordable, um, and they actually kind of fold up. They have hinges on the corners, and that you could put them in a trunk and drive home with it. So that would be another easy access point. So my, I mean, my preference is to grow things in the ground, and I have my reasons for that. Uh, which does have to do with like you know maybe things not drying out as quick. But I also really like to use a wheel hoe and other hoes for weeding and stuff. And it, I just have found it to be easier like when you're growing things in the ground. But absolutely, I think raised beds are are a, are a great thing. And we have a very simple, easy to set up raised bed at our store. And you could like do like a fifty-fifty compost potting soil mix or something and fill it up with bags at our store or possibly like. Have um, some topsoil, like some a garden, especially like mixed, like a garden mix type of soil that maybe could be delivered by uh, like a landscaping company or something like that, which we are not in the business of doing at our garden center. But um, yeah,
0: and then uh, berries. What kind of berries are fruit trees?
1: Yeah, well, I think oh, so. We have uh, we have currants. I'm actually going to be potting up a lot of these plants later today because we get these plants uh, bare root dormant and we and we pot them up and. Um, Yeah, we have currants, we have raspberries, blackberries, um, we have strawberries, and we have actually at the store right now, we have goji berries, we have jostaberry. Uh, Jostaberry is actually a cross with with black currants and gooseberries. Uh, We also have gooseberries. We also have elderberries. Um, We have uh, Nanking cherry bushes, and... There's probably some that I'm still leaving out. Uh, we sure. also have some grapes. Uh, we have some grapes at the store, and um,
0: and this is one thing. Like we talk about the work, uh, and I, I'm, I'm I'm actually because I'm a little older, but I'm actually looking at a retirement yard. And once you plant, and once these get established, they're so much more easier to. To take care of – like the gooseberries, they just – they just <laughs> you don't have to rake there. You don't – you just pick them. That's all you do. And if you want to leave them for the birds, you can leave them for the birds. And um, same with the blueberry patch. I mean once it gets established, it's actually um, – it, it's a lot less work than taking care of – than some of the normative I mean, things. I
1: would say the toughest plants that I've pretty much – one of the toughest plants that I've observed are current bushes. They can grow almost anywhere. They're shade tolerant. Um, I've seen, you know, in South Jersey where, like, other things didn't do as well. We had, like, a sandier soil there. Um, currents just always seem – like, pretty much any place you put a current, they just grow. Also, you can take cuttings from currents. We, we could do a little plant education here, actually, for propagation of, um, of certain plants. But with cuttings uh, – with, with, uh, with currents, for example – if you take a cutting of it, like you snip off like a like the six inches of like a branch, you put that into potting soil, it will grow roots out of that branch. And so you can actually like buy a plant and like, like let's say a few years down the road it gets big. You want to grow a few more plants? You don't even need to come. Uh, uh, you know, you don't even need to go buy more plants. You can you can actually take cuttings and propagate plants yourself.
0: Great. We're going to need to take a break. We're talking with Dusty Hines with Agrarian Seed and Garden. We'll be back with our last segment shortly. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone that's ready to get my um, ready to start gardening season. Um, and in studio with me is a Dusty Hines. He's with Agrarian Seed and Garden, which is at 52nd and Hiawatha in Minneapolis. Um, down in our last segment, we wanted to talk and touch on agroforestry a little bit. So tell us what tell us a little bit about agroforestry.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty much any chance that I get to. Be on the radio or promote some type of like message to people like uh, that would be like my like you know little boilerplate like banner or something is um, is the chance to like push this idea of how critical agroforestry could be to our future and really I think part and parcel of the ecological crises that we face is this is this dominant corn and soybean um, agriculture model but really any honestly any it's it's arguable that almost any annual grain is going to have challenges in the long long run of humanity and but with our corn with our current industrial agriculture system i mean we are losing Top soil, like crazy four right tons now.
0: Of, four tons an acre,
1: yeah, like, and it's just this is just we're in a soil crisis, yes, and we, water of crisis this, soil crisis, all of this <laughs> soil gets you know it gets eroded into the rivers and it's like deposited basically down in like the Mississippi delta or whatever um among, creating you know, a dead other,
0: zone in the Gulf of Mexico,
1: absolutely, and so I think. And, and 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 it's the soil is such a is also like a finite resource. I mean, we it does take you. you we can create more, but it's some like but the amount of topsoil um, that was just here when you know the white settlers came across this land and just started farming it um, was massive. And that but that was built up over thousands and thousands of years. This like this super rich topsoil, and now every single year, um, it's just it's it's getting eroded away, and it's that to me, that's one of the scariest things when I think about our future. I read something about how there's an estimated thing that we have like 60 harvests left with the, not just like, it's, it's the erosion that we're causing, but it's also the damage that's being done to the soil by spraying all the chemicals, using all the synthetic nitrogen, and then just tilling the soil every year and growing those, like, these energy-intensive, these uh, nutrient-intensive uh, crops on it every single year um, without ever, you know, hardly changing up or doing any rotations or anything like that. And it's like people till up their entire farm. I mean, even on, even on like where we should not be tilling on like hillsides and slopes and things like that on properties. I mean, people till on slopes all the time and like, that's just going to, that's a recipe for erosion and losing all of our soil. So this idea of agroforestry is basically, uh, growing many more perennial, uh, plants, um, instead of annual grains. And, a great example of this that I'm trying to focus on are chestnuts, and I've been involved with this farm in southern Minnesota called Badger Set that has focused on breeding hazelnuts, chestnuts, and hickory pecan. Uh, hickory pecan is another subject, but it's basically this hybrid species between hickory and pecan. Uh, but my big goal is at my farm, I'm trying to plant 20 acres of chestnut trees, and um, and so we plant them with about 30 with 30 feet between rows. We tra- we plant a tree every three feet with the idea that we'll eventually do um, thinning. And um, but really, this this is about we're sequestering carbon. We're no longer tilling the soil. I have seen at Badger Set. Where underneath thirty-five-year-old chestnut plantings, they also graze sheep. So now this like grass and pasture that comes up, it needs to be dealt with. The nuts, when the nuts fall on the ground, you need like a clean kind of like you know a, not necessarily a mowed area, but you need to get rid of the grass. And what better than to have a sheep come through, eat all that grass down, poop out, and spread the nitrogen all over the place. And so it's this really kind of this holistic system. And uh, we're also uh, a couple other things, chestnuts. Human beings can eat chestnuts. It's a, it's a great food source. It's a, it's a healthy thing to be eating. Um, I like, I, I love eating chestnuts. Um,
0: and I, I'm gonna, I, I, do have an American chestnut and hazelnuts in my yard from Badger Set and that we planted those a long time ago. Now the huts, I don't know how long I have to wait to get the, the chestnuts. Um, but the hazelnuts are producing and I'm getting them and love them. Got some rabbit damage this year, but. <laughs> Hopefully, they'll survive.
1: <laughs> well, in an urban or suburban area, there's such a great squirrel pressure because of just the whole. You just
0: have to beat them, that's all. <laughs> and, but, but, but out, no, but, not hit them, but just what's beat nice them as nuts.
1: Out in, the, out in the country, when you plant, like, you know, maybe like a five acre hazelnut planting or something, there's enough birds of prey around, and if you keep it properly taken care of, like, it's, like the squirrel pressure is way far more, like, uh, in the city. Um, the. Other thing I wanted to say about chestnuts is you can make a you, – if, if you can make a shelf-stable kind of like uh, chestnut meal or like a chestnut flour. Um, that could that that could be something that we live off of and is uh, – so
0: I heard this and I, I would love to get it confirmed because I, I haven't confirmed it. But like it was chestnuts, we got roasting chestnuts. We got a so- songs that remember chestnuts. But the story I heard that was in a particular area – it was the ultimate gig economy. Was to harvest the chestnuts. You know, families would gather. They would work for a couple of weeks, and they would get all the money and they would need for like, like like they could make like ten to twenty percent of what they needed for that year by collecting and roasting chestnuts. It was a gig economy.
1: Well, unfortunately, when the chestnut blight came in in the early in the nineteen hundred earlier earlier in the nineteen hundreds, um, the chestnut blight um, came in like in a botanical zoo in the Bronx in New York or something, and it. Devastated the American chestnut, and that is uh, really tragic. And it, you know, probably it's unlikely that we're going to see forests like there maybe once was. Um, what's what, the thing is? Okay, so at Badger said this farm, Philip Rutter is the founder there. He also founded the American Chestnut Foundation, and that has uh, that has noble intentions, and that's like a, a worthwhile thing. But at his own farm in southeastern Minnesota. He has been uh, planting five different chestnut species together. Um, sometimes like, you know, part American, part European, part Chinese chestnut or part Japanese chestnut. Um, and yeah. so he's Doesn't- basically trying to breed um, like a new chestnut that is like adapted to the Midwest. It's cold hardy. It's blight resistant because the American genetics are good in there for a certain uh, for a growth habit and certain like certain characteristics. But the American chestnut is not uh, – Blight-resistant. Well,
0: we, we can we can bring it back, though. And unfortunately, we're down to our last minute. Um, uh, Dusty Hines, Agrarian Seed. And again, the location and the website, or people can visit yeah, you? Yes, so
1: there is the Experimental Farm Network, and that is a seed company. And that is mostly an online business, and that is efnseeds.com. You could also look for us on Facebook and Instagram. You could just look up Experimental Farm Network. Then we also run this uh, small little brick-and-mortar garden center in South Minneapolis. That's at 52nd and Hiawatha. Um, You can also find us on Facebook and uh, Instagram, Agrarian Seed and Garden. And it's also agrarianseed.com is our website. Come get some plants from us. Come talk about gardening and all types of uh, radical ecological ideas. I'm at the store um, most of the month of May.
0: Radical ecological ideas. Other words, not ecocide, but just like love. Yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to Food Freedom Radio.